You know, holidays like Easter are, are marked with certain traditions. At Christmas time, we expect to see presents under the tree. Uh, it's hard to imagine the 4th of July without fireworks and barbecue. Um, if you were walking around town yesterday or out in public on St. Patrick's Day, you probably saw more people than usual wearing the color green. Traditions. Uh, this week, I learned about two churches on a small island of Chios in the country of Greece that share a very, very unusual Easter, Easter tradition. And I'm going to actually let you watch this while I'm telling you the story. There's some footage of this. On Easter, uh, these two rival churches, they light up fireworks and they shoot them at each other's buildings. <laughs> and the purpose of this is to hit... Uh, the other church's bell tower, specifically their bell. Now, every year, over 25,000 rockets are used, and 150 people are used uh, to help fire them off. And all of this is happening while service is in session. <laughs> it's kind of rooted in something that happened uh, years ago. I think this video will explain it in just a second. But um, in the past... These rockets, this tradition of shooting fireworks at each other has uh, caused fires, as you might, like, no big surprise, uh, fires, damages to homes, and even death. People have died uh, from this tradition of firing fireworks at each other. We're not going to take this tradition on here at Trinity. We, we've decided not to do that. Our leadership convened and said no. Um, yeah, there are some traditions, there are some traditions that in my opinion, shouldn't be touched, shouldn't be messed with, shouldn't be changed. One of them is like the Thanksgiving meal, right? I want my turkey, my mashed potatoes, my stuffing, and my pies. Don't mess with it. But there are some traditions that need to be looked at again, need to be changed, like this one. Like they need to have a serious conversation with their insurance companies about this tradition. And in our story this morning, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, we're in Mark chapter 14, we're going to look at a story that's very familiar to you. And what's happening here is that Jesus is actually changing a tradition. He's changing a tradition that is ancient, that is well-known, that is near and dear to the heart of every Jewish man, woman, and child. And this story in Mark chapter 14 takes place on the night before he is, his crucifixion. Jesus has gathered his disciples together, his closest friends, and he's presiding over a feast. And the feast is called the Passover. And when it came to the Passover, there was a long-standing script that was used by everyone. But on this night, in this room, at this meal, Jesus changes it. Let's look at this in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. We're going to look at verses 22 to 25. It says this, as they were eating... He, speaking of Jesus, took bread. After blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Actually, in the Aramaic, there's no verb that means is. So really what Jesus said was, take this, my body. Verse 23, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant. Once again, there's no is there. He's not saying this wine literally is my blood. He's saying this, my blood, representative of my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
This is our text for the morning. In this text, uh, Jesus is revealing to his disciples something about the nature of what it is he offers. And so this morning, we're going to learn three things about the nature of what Jesus has to offer to us. Now, before we get into it, let me just say this, or let me answer this question. Why does this matter? Why is this a big deal? Well, it matters for three reasons. Number one, if you think Jesus is offering one thing and he's offering something completely different, don't you need to know? You need to know. Because it's a possibility that you are rejecting something, thinking that that's what Jesus actually offers when he actually offers something completely different. Another reason why we need to answer the question this morning is because if Jesus is offering something better than you're currently receiving, don't you want to know? If there's a better deal out there, I want to I wanna know about it. And then lastly, this matters because if you are in a place in your life where you want to share this news with other people, you want to share with other people what Jesus offers, then you need to know. What is it he offers? And so three things that we're going to look at this morning about the nature of what Jesus offers. And the first one is this. You can fill in the blank in your notes if you want. It's the continuity. There is a continuity to what Jesus offers. Now, this story in Mark 14 and the symbolism in this story it won't make as much sense to us if we don't realize that this is part of a, a bigger story. This is the continuation of a story. And specifically, what happens in this text is connected to one memorable Old Testament story in the book of Exodus that happened about 1,500 years before Jesus was born. So let me give you a little background information on this story. God chose a man named Abraham. And he promised Abraham that he would become a family and that his family would become a people. And then that was the people through whom which God planned to bless the entire world. So Abraham's son Isaac and his grandson, grandson Jacob inherited the same covenant promise. And then Jacob had 12 sons who would in time become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. During Jacob's lifetime, his family the Jewish people, they had to migrate to Egypt. And the reason they had to go to Egypt because there was a famine in their own land. They were invited and they were welcomed into Egypt only because one of their own, one of Jacob's 12 sons, a man named Joseph, was already there. And Joseph was respected by the Pharaoh, so much so that Joseph sat second in command over the entire empire of Egypt. But eventually, a new Pharaoh rose to power. And the Bible says that this Pharaoh didn't know Joseph. And this Pharaoh feared the Jewish people. He feared their numerical growth and the threat that they represented. So what did he do? He enslaved them. He enslaved God's people. And they were enslaved for 400 years. God hears their cry, and he raises up a man named Moses, a deliverer named Moses. And if you've seen the Ten Commandments, or if you've seen Prince of Egypt, you have some sense of who Moses is. Moses walks up to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no way. And then God rolls out what we call the Ten Plagues. And I actually preached a message on the Ten Plagues last November. You can listen to it online if you want to know more about the actual plagues. But what's happening is that one at a time, God is confronting and defeating the gods and the goddesses of Egypt. And so one through nine, and then he gets to the 10th plague, and the 10th plague is the worst. And the 10th plague is this. God says through Moses, tonight, the angel of death is going to come through Egypt. And the firstborn male in every home is going to die. And this is true for Egyptian homes, and this is true for the Hebrew homes. Now, God also told the Jewish people, here's how you can be saved. Sacrifice a lamb. Take a one-year-old male, unblemished lamb, Sacrifice the lamb, put its 
blood on the doorpost of your house and on the lintel of the door and then have a special meal. And he gave very specific instructions on how to, how to have this meal, unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And, and that lamb that was sacrificed was supposed to be eaten that night, symbolizing that Jesus not only saves us, but he, he sustains us. He gives us strength. He even said how to cook the lamb. He said, don't boil the lamb. Don't eat it raw. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why he'd say that, but don't eat it raw. Don't boil it. He said, roast it. Cook it over fire. God loves barbecue. I love that about God. I, I, I love that about him. He loves barbecue. God's smart enough to know that meat and fire is a wonderful combination. Sorry to our vegetarian friends. He said, if you do that, if you apply the blood to the doorpost and to the lintel, and if you partake in this meal, then when the angel of death comes to Egypt, this angel will pass over your house. And your firstborn sons will not die because the lamb died. So here's what this all means. The lamb was a substitute sacrifice. In every home that night, either a lamb died or a son died. There was no other outcome. The lamb was a substitute sacrifice. And it's that night, it's that event, 1,500 years before Jesus gathers his disciples into this room, the night on which he's betrayed, and it's the components of that meal that represented uh, that the Exodus, the Passover, and to help Jewish people remember. Now, in Tim Keller's book on the Gospel of Mark, he says that the Passover meal, at this point in history, it's evolved over time. There's things that Jewish people do today in the Passover meal that they wouldn't have done that night, just because it's evolved over time. doesn't mean it's wrong, it just means it's changed. But at this point in history, the Passover meal included four different points in the, in the meal, in the ceremony, at which the presider, which was Jesus, holding a glass of wine would have got up and explained the feast meanings. So the third cup came at a point when the meal was almost completely eaten. The presider would use words from the Old Testament to bless the elements and explain what they meant, the bread, the herbs, the lamb. There are symbolic reminders of Israelites' captivity and deliverance. And this is what the presider would do uh, after he lifted the third cup. He would show them the bread and say this, this bread is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. So he would break the bread, he would hand it to them, and he would say, this bread symbolizes something. Here's what it symbolizes. Our affliction as a people and the suffering of our forefathers in the wilderness, the bread that they ate. But this night, Jesus changes the script. He messes with a tradition that is 1,500 years old, and he breaks the bread, and they're all waiting for him to say the line that's been said over and over and over. Instead, he said, this bread is my body. And here's what he's saying. This is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my suffering. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you know the story of the Exodus. You know how God delivered our forefathers from the bondage under the hand of Pharaoh, but I'm here to lead the ultimate Exodus and to lead you into ultimate deliverance from your bondage. See, in Egypt, there was physical bondage, but Jesus came to set us free from spiritual bondage. They were enslaved to the enemies around them, but you and I are enslaved to the enemy within us, ourselves. They were saved from temporary suffering and misery. Because of Jesus, we can be saved from eternal suffering and misery. They were promised and brought into a promised land, but we are promised and will be brought into the promised land. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the true and better deliverer. Jesus is bringing people out. It's the real exodus. And here's what Jesus is saying. When you look at the continuity of what Jesus offers on this night, here's what he's saying to his disciples. I'm going to get you out. 
I'm just like Moses led the people of Israel out. I'm going to be the one who leads you out. I'm going to get you out. And this morning, listen, this is what he offers to you. This is what he offers to me, a way out, a way out, a way out of what? A way out of your sin, a way out of your suffering, a way out of your shame, a way out of your selfishness, a way out of your sickness, a way out of your slavery. Because he is the greater deliverer and because he is the fulfillment of the Passover feast, he offers us a way out, the continuity of what Jesus offers. Now, how does he do it? What brings us to our second point? Not only is the nature of it continuity, but the second thing is the completeness of what Jesus offers. The completeness, nothing lacking, the completeness in two ways. He offers us both the bread and the wine. We'll talk about that in a second. But he also offers it to anyone and everyone. The completeness of what he offers. Let's talk about this. He offers the bread and the wine. When Jesus says, the bread is my body, that Greek word body is the word soma. And soma means it's all of me. It's everything about me. It's the whole person. It's the whole self. So Jesus is saying, I'm not holding back anything from you. I'm giving you all of me. I'm sharing all that I have. Everything that I have, I am giving to you. And bread symbolizes the very sustenance that we need to live. It's a staple of almost every cuisine around the world is some sort of bread. And Jesus says here, I am the bread and this is my body and it's my life and my death that will sustain you and give you strength and feed your soul and feed your spirit. Every now and then I'll be talking to somebody about their day and I'll be asking how their day went. And I'll say to them, I always like to, I'm just curious about what people eat for lunch. So I just said, hey, what, do you, what did you have for lunch today? And every now and then, very rare, but every now and then somebody will say to me something like this. Uh, what did I have for lunch today? And then they'll go, oh, I forgot to eat. I forgot to eat lunch. I remember the first time somebody said that to me, I looked at them and I was like, that's a thing? Like, <laughs> people do that? People forget to eat their meals? <laughs> like, I couldn't even comprehend it. I plan my, my days around my meals. <laughs> See, most of us in this room have never experienced real hunger. And we've gotten hungry at times. Some of you have fasted for long periods of time. Some of you, I don't know all your stories. So some of you maybe have experienced real hunger. I heard somebody from a third world country say, you don't really know hunger until you don't know where your next meal is coming from. We don't really know what hunger is. Now, this uh, past couple years, I read a couple books, a couple historical books. One was about the sinking of the Essex, which was a ship that sunk in the ocean. It's, it, the book was called the, In the Heart of the Sea. It became a movie. And it's the story, it's the real life story on which the legend Moby Dick is based because a whale actually sunk this ship. Um, and then I read another book recently called The Indifferent Stars Above, which is a story about the Oregon Trail. And it's about the Donner Party that traveled the Oregon Trail in the mid-1800s, and they got stuck in the Sierra Mountain. And in both stories, these people ended up in dire straits. In one case, floating in a life raft in the middle of the ocean with no hope of rescue. And in the other one, stuck in an epic snowstorm in the Sierra Mountains with babies and infants and unable to leave and unable to move. And I'll spare you the grisly details, but what hunger does to people is unthinkable. What happens to people when they're genuinely hungry? They'll eat anything. And in both of these stories, there's, it actually turns into moments of even cannibalism. And so this terrible hunger, and here's what happens. We will hunger for lesser things when bread's not available. 
If bread's not available, we will eventually, because of our need to survive, we'll put anything edible that we think is even somewhat edible into us. And so when Jesus says he's the bread, here's what we understand. We need the bread not just because we will starve without it. You actually will not starve without the bread of life that comes from Jesus on this side of eternity. But what you'll do is you'll feast on the wrong things. You, your, 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 your need to live spiritually, your need for your life to matter and mean something is too strong for you to starve. But what you'll do is you'll eat things that will poison you. You'll eat things that will, that will wreck you. You'll eat things uh, that, will, that will corrupt you. You'll eat things that make yourselves sick. And this is what they would do when they were floating on this life raft. They knew they couldn't drink that water that was salt water. They knew it would actually hurt them in the long run to drink it, but they couldn't stop themselves from drinking it because they had lost their minds because they, they needed to feed their hunger and their thirst. And when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he's saying, either you take me in or you're gonna take something else in. And whatever else you take in, it's not bread. It will poison you and sicken you. Jesus in John 6, 35 said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Which leads us to the next thing he offers, which is wine. Now, last Sunday when I was standing here and preaching, I was pretty certain, pretty convinced that Syracuse basketball was not gonna make the tournament. I was pretty sure that their season wasn't impressive enough to qualify. So when I found out that they qualified last Sunday night, I was like, this is awesome, this is amazing. Like, I don't even care if they win. I'm just so glad they're in, right? And then Wednesday night, they had to do a play-in game to get into the actual field. And I'm watching the game, and it was really a difficult game to watch. They were struggling, it was an ugly game, they were losing most of it. And even though earlier in the week I'd been like, I don't even care if they win, I'm just glad they're in. Now I cared that they won. I'm like, they gotta win this game. And so they win the game and I'm like, oh, that's all I needed, right? Now they're in the tournament. It's legit, it feels more legitimate. If they lose to TCU, whatever. TCU is a good team, we're not a very good team. And then they're playing TCU on Friday night and I'm up late watching going, they better win this game. Like, (laughs) you guys better win this game. And then today at 2.40, they're tipping off against Michigan State. And let's be realistic. Michigan State's a great basketball team with a great coach. And I'm trying to tell myself now, who cares? <laughs> who cares? They've already won two games. They're not, I'm making all the excuses in my head. It's their third game in five days. They have no bench. They're tired. They can't shoot. They're terrible on offense. Like, they're never going to beat a team coached by Tom Izzo in the NCAA tournament. But I'm telling you, about 3.30, I'm going to have a totally different feeling going on. I'm going to be like, you better win this game. <laughs> You know, as, as humans, we have what is called an insatiable thirst for more. We're not easily satisfied. In fact, we're never really satisfied. I was watching a Netflix documentary this week about a Korean chef named David Chang. And he sat down at this table full of Korean barbecue. And he looked at it all and he said to his table mates, oh man, we are going to eat until we are unhappy. <laughs> and I related to that, but I thought that's it, right? That's it in a nutshell. That's the insatiable hunger, the insatiable thirst. I'm going to do this until I'm unhappy, and then I'm going to find a way to do it again. And we have this thirst in us, and Jesus offers us this wine. And Jesus also was called uh, the, the, the water of life, the, the river of life flowing from Jesus, the water that came down. And so Jesus alone can satisfy that thirst. We'll, we'll never find something else that satisfies us. And the other thing that's symbolic about wine here is that wine is known for bringing joy to the wedding celebration, that Jesus is the only one that can ultimately fill our lives with joy. So Jesus offers the bread and the wine. And what Jesus is saying in the Lord's Supper is this, 
I am trying to remind you that this is the real food that your heart needs. Look at my undying, unconditional commitment to you, which was demonstrated by my dying commitment for you, and now my living commitment to you. And that's the food that your heart needs. You know what's notice the commentators, or you know what's interesting? The commentators pointed out this. Jesus didn't say this. He didn't say, this bread is my body. Everybody gather around and take a look. Everybody think about this. Everybody consider it. Everybody talk about it. Everybody write down things about it. He says, you got to take it. You got to take it. You got to take it into you. You got to consume this. He's saying, you have to take what I'm doing for you. Yes, I've given this to you. I've laid out this table for you, the bread and the wine, but it's on you. You have to receive it. You have to take it into you. It's not enough just to stand outside of it. You can't just come to church and just kind of like circle around Jesus. You can't just fill your life with religious activity and thinking, I got more of Jesus than I got of the world, so I'm okay. You have to take him in. It has to be intimate. He has to dwell within you. You have to receive it. You cannot achieve what he's done for you, but you must receive what he's done for you. See, Jesus gives it completely, so it's on us to take it in completely, all of it, and to let it go and make its effect on every area of our lives. So he offers the bread and the wine, but the other reason why the nature of what he offers is completeness is because he offers it to anyone and everyone. Now this night, Jesus gathers his friends together, his disciples together, and says, let's share the Passover meal. And this is a little bit unusual, because in this culture, the Passover meal was actually supposed to be shared almost, almost only with your family. This was a family thing. But when Jesus called together his disciples, he basically was saying, you have a new family. We're a family. He's not in any way devaluing the natural family, but he's reframing the way that we see other people. And what he's saying here is that the bread and the wine can be for anyone. Now, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but this story here in Mark 14, it's framed by two things. Right before it is a reference to the betrayal of Judas. Judas is going to go betray Jesus. And right after it, Jesus predicts Peter's denial. So you have Jesus offering the cup the bread, and on the front end is betrayal, and on the back end is empty promises. Jesus in the middle, faithful and true. And you know why this table is amazing? Because when Jesus offers the bread in the cup, guess who's still in the room? Judas and Peter. At Jesus' table, there is room for deserters and betrayers. The completeness is this. The invitation to the table is not exclusive. It's for anyone. The person who's hurt you, the person that bothers you, that annoys you, that drives you crazy at work, that neighbor who's giving you a hard time, there's a seat at the table for him or for her. Now, if that bothers you more than it encourages you, if that gives you pause more than it gives you hope, then you might not understand how undeserved your seat is at the table. And you'll never, leave, you'll never live free because you'll always be thinking about what you bring to the table. You always think that you earned your seat and about your commitment to the Lord. You'll, th- you'll think things like this. If I just read the Bible more, prayed more, if I was more committed, I wouldn't be this way. If only I didn't fail so much, how can God put up with someone like me? But here's what Jesus is saying. Come to the table. I welcome you here. I am far more, listen, the Spirit wants to say this to your heart this morning. I am far more committed to you than you are to me. I'm far more committed to you than you are to me. And the table should remind us to depend on the completeness of his commitment to us and not the completeness of our commitment to him because our commitment to him is very incomplete, but his is complete. And if that's true, this is what it means. You're free to love, you're free to serve for the right reasons. And then when someone comes to the table that you might not have chosen to be at the table, not only are you fine with it, you can rejoice in it because it reminds you of your seat 
at the table. The continuity of what Jesus offers, the completeness, and then lastly, as we close, the cost. The cost of what Jesus offers. In verse 24, Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. What does the bread really represent? Well, it's obvious. It represents his body. Jesus is saying, for you to be made whole, I'm going to have to be torn apart. For you to be fixed, I'm going to have to be broken, just like this bread was broken. And next week, we're going to look at the suffering and the crucifixion. We're going to see that's exactly what happened. And then what does the cup ultimately represent? It represents his blood. And he's saying, I'm going to give all of my blood for you. Now, listen, if we were bartering back and forth and trading stuff, like give me your baseball cards for your football cards or give me your car for this motorcycle, we're trading back and forth, and someone said, well, how about, how, how about, how about I, I trade you this for all your blood? What are you going to say? No, what? Creep? Like, no way. Give you all my blood. Like, there's literally nothing more valuable to a human being than the blood inside their body. And when Jesus says, this is my blood poured out for you, and that word poured out means a violent death, which is what's about to happen to Jesus. When he says, this is my blood for you, here's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to give to you my most val- everything I got, my most valuable. The most valuable thing I have, I'm going to give. Why? Because according to the author of Hebrews, there's no shed, there's no, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And the blood and the death of Jesus provides forgiveness of sins, and it provides a right relationship with God. So listen, it's not just a way out, it's also a way in. It's not just getting out, it's also you get in. So Jesus dies to forgive us. What were the wrongs that he had to forgive us of? Well, the wrongs were the sins of all humankind, of all time ever done. And so great a wrong that it required so great a punishment. And Jesus is about to walk to the cross and absorb that punishment. That phrase being poured out for many is an allusion to Isaiah fifty three twelve, which speaks of the Messiah as one who poured out his soul to death, describing a violent death. And that word many references those who would benefit from his atoning death, including you and me. So what's the cost? of what Jesus offers you this morning. The cost is the life of God's one and only son, the lamb of God. According to many commentators, think about this for a second. Jesus died on the cross at the exact same moment that Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple. It was Passover weekend. So at the exact moment that the lambs were being slaughtered to cover the sins of the Israelites, the Jewish people, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was being slaughtered upon a cross, not just to cover the sins of some, but to be poured out for many, for all who would receive. And one of the commentators says that Jesus died as the real Lamb, merely prefigured by those who were slain in the temple. Those lambs that were slain in the temple, it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't enough. It wasn't complete. It didn't finish the story. It doesn't give us what, is, what we need, and it doesn't pay the cost. It's not a high enough cost for the wrong that needed to be forgiven. And so Jesus, the Lamb of God, poured out his life upon that cross. And let me finish with this verse in Revelation chapter 5. Because Jesus, did you notice the last verse? Jesus said, I will not drink this cup again until I drink it new in the kingdom. What was that about? People used to go on, I think they still do, people used to go on what was called hunger fast, right? Where they, or hunger strike, where they say, until this gets resolved, I won't eat. 
I won't drink. And the commentators say, this is what Jesus is saying. This is how strong he's holding his promise to. Until I bring you into the new kingdom, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna drink of this cup again. I'm not gonna sit down at a feast again. But someday he's gonna bring us into the new kingdom and he is gonna sit down at the table and there is going to be a feast, the Lamb's Supper, and we're gonna be there with him. In Revelation chapter five, the apostle John gets a glimpse into heaven and he says this, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures amid the elders or and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Can you hear John just trying to come up with numbers and words, trying to explain, oh man, how can I even make this make sense for people? And he says, all of these heavenly beings surrounding the throne are all crying out the same thing with a loud voice. And here's what they're crying in verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus offered his very life to you so that you could experience true life, both here and now and forever with him. Let's bow our heads and pray. Prepare our hearts this morning to receive communion.